1: the Total Soccer Show weekend review edition where we'll provide a firm grasp on the important matches from the weekend. That grasp being at least as firm as the one Granite Jacker had on Ashley Westwood's neck. I'm Ryan Bailey and joining me today is someone who hopefully saved me from my shoddy weekend analogies like a Crystal Palace goalkeeper saving them Tottenham shots. Graham Rutherford, how are you sir?
2: I'm not bad Ryan, how are you?
1: Very good indeed. Thank you all the better for having you join me on this wonderful Monday. Graham, you've had quite a weekend. You've done a big thing, haven't you?
2: That's right. I've I've moved house. Saturday and Sunday was a little bit crazy for me. I'm not entirely sure where any of my belongings are. I don't know where any of my socks are. I'm wearing gloves on my feet as we speak right now. I'm not entirely sure. I know where my daughter is. Maybe she's in one of these boxes around me, but... Uh, Yes, I have a bed and a TV, and as a football fan, that's all I needed over the weekend. So it's all good.
1: Bed and TV, yeah. I'm sure the glove and the daughters will turn up somewhere. You'll be fine, with that, don't worry. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't like moving house. I don't think anyone likes moving house, Graham. But the one nightmare I had when I did move house to the current location I'm in about three years ago, I had a saltwater fish tank, and uh, that is really hard to move because it had live fish and live coral in it. And I, the whole move went great, apart from the last thing to do was to get this fish tank out of the old house. So I get it um, with a friend, helps me, and we carry it to the car, and we instantly crack the fish tank. Uh, salt water going everywhere. It wasn't it wasn't full, but uh, the situation being that we were moving to a new house and I had a bunch of fish that had nowhere to live. It was a disaster. And do
2: you keep the, the fish in the fish tank while you're moving it? Would it not have been a better idea to, to empty it and then and put, I don't know, how do you transport fish? It's not a thing I've ever really thought about before.
1: So the fish went, and the fish and, like, the coral and stuff went in their own little buckets, because if you actually picked up the tank with the water in it, it would just be far too heavy, and obviously it would slosh around a bit in the car. Um, So, we yeah, we moved that, but obviously the tank had a little bit of water in it, and... The, the way we moved it into the car was very dumb and we ended up cracking it and uh, it was one of the most regretful moments of my life. But I was very lucky that my local fish store took my fish for a little while until the new tank arrived. But it was it was one of those very, very stressful moments and uh, um, uh, I don't want to move again anytime soon. That's the moral of this story.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I didn't have a fish tank, but I did have a, a million uh, football shirts that I was uh, shouting at my wife. Don't drop those, don't drop those. Those are precious. Those are from the 90s, early 90s Serie A shirts with their uh, rear sponsors seven up Fiorentina shirts and so on those were uh, great care was taken moving those
1: oh you haven't got the Milan shirt with poo jeans on it do you <laughs>
2: no I don't I don't I don't. that's one missing from the collection <laughs> I don't have any poo jeans oh, you,
1: you need to solve, solve that one um, here's another question for you though because whenever we move we tend to downsize and I have I don't think I've ever thrown out anything from my football shirt collection but have you been tempted to downsize any of like your soccer stuff or are you, are you more, of a, more of a hoarder
2: no, definitely a hoarder. I found a a calendar from 2018 from Inverness Caledonian Thistle that they'd sent me. Uh, I'm not an Inverness fan, and um, they just sent me it for no reason at all, really. But I, I kept it in my office, and I decided that was coming with me again for no reason at all, just because uh, you know it's it's football stuff, and uh, that's what I do. I hoard it.
1: Wonderful stuff. We're going to be talking about some football stuff, plenty of it in the next hour or so, Graham. Let's start off, though, um, the big game of the weekend from an MLS perspective, MLS Cup. Um, Columbus crew having a 3-0 route, I should say, over the Seattle Sounders, uh, even though they were without Pedro Santos and without Darlington Nagby, who were absent from this game. Uh, They absolutely bossed it in what's likely the last game at Mapfree Stadium, uh, moving to their fancy new downtown stadium uh, for next season. What did you make of this one, Graham?
2: Yeah, I mean before the game I actually thought that Seattle were were probably the the better team. Um I think they have probably better players especially because Darlington Nagbe missing out which was was such a shame, you know, he's been he's, he's such a star of that team. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he obviously has the connection with Caleb Porter. They they they, they have something going on there. They, they you know, they've achieved success at, at, at previous clubs in, in in Portland and for him to to miss that game was was, you know, Really bad, and 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 kind of robbed the game. Well, I thought it was going to rob the game of a little bit of spectacle, and that, that didn't really happen. I thought the the crew were just very impressive. It kind of felt just a bit like it was it was meant to be for them, you know, with it being the the last kind of big game at, at Matford Stadium, and obviously that everything that's happened to them as a franchise in terms of uh, the the proposed move to Austin and 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 the takeover and and the new stadium that's getting built next year. It just felt like. Um, Both at the same time, the end of an era and also the start of of another era for that club, you know, pointing them in the direction of what will hopefully be a a, a glorious uh, age for for the Columbus Crew. So a a very impressive performance. And one thing you should note, actually, I noticed this earlier today, if you Google MLS Cup and it comes up with a score, it actually comes up with uh, black and gold uh, fireworks, which I thought was pretty neat. I don't know if uh, Garber sorted that out, but if he did, Don, good job on that.
1: Yeah, well done, uh, Commissioner Garber. Um, it was fresh from being booed after that game by the uh, Columbus Crew uh, home fans. Maybe it sorted that out for Google. It is a great story, though, as you say, um, in the five years since they were last in the MLS Cup final. Um, a lot has happened to that team. A very bold move from Austin FC. I don't know if you saw this, Graham. Um, th- uh, congratulating Columbus Crew uh, on their victory on Twitter. I thought that was a, a bold social media manager there.
2: Yeah, I don't know whether that's a, a social media manager trying to... Uh, Quell some of the heat that might be coming next year when they enter the league, but I, I don't think a tweet, a congratulatory tweet, uh, is going to be enough to uh, to get rid of that that fire. That one's already been lit.
1: It has indeed. Well, um, we're not going to go too far into MLS Cup because uh, our friend Joe Lowry is going to be dealing with that on Tuesday. He's going to have a real in-depth discussion of that and the MLS season in general. So you can look forward to that one. We're going to deal a little bit more with uh, continental action over in Europe. Before we do so, though, Graham, uh, the Champions League draw for the round of 16 has occurred this very Monday. Should we have a little chat about that? There's uh, There's a lot of interesting draws. I'd say almost all but one of these are very interesting to me let's read I'll, I'll just read them out um Borussia Mönchengladbach have got Manchester City Lazio Bayern Munich Atletico Madrid against Chelsea RB Leipzig Liverpool uh, Porto against Juventus Barcelona Paris Saint-Germain uh Sevilla against Borussia Dortmund and Atalanta against Real Madrid I want to watch every single one of those Graham perhaps with the exception of Lazio Bayern I feel like that's the most foregone conclusion here
2: Perhaps, but the game actually, and I know this. I don't want really to come across as contrarian, but the game actually in there that I'm least interested in is is Barcelona PSG, just because it seems like every single season they play each other in the Champions League. I've seen that one play out at least three three times already. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if I want another episode of it. Obviously, they're two uh two you know great teams. Well, debatable with Barcelona at the moment. Two wow. big teams, shall we say, two big clubs. But I've seen that one before. Give me give me something a little bit different. But yeah, uh. A lot of interesting games. I think the, the Gladbach City game is is one that stands out for me. With uh, I know Gladbach didn't perform in that final group game against Real Madrid, but still having a very good season. Still made it through to the last 16. Very um, good attacking side with players like Marcus Turam, Lars Stendel's having a good season, uh, Alison Play, of course, um, Mbolo and i think they have the firepower that, that, that city could struggle with obviously the def- questions over their defence um they'll past two seasons leon exposed that in the champions league last year so for me that's the, that's the most interesting game but yeah lots lots of interesting fixtures there
1: yeah, that does look very interesting. Gladbach in the knockout stages for the first time as well, so they'll be looking to make a mark. It's one of those ones you look at it and for the first second you think that should be a bit of a cruise for Manchester City, but no, you do look at what uh, uh, Gladbach have done this season. And, you know, if they treat them any any way that, like they treated Shakhtar Donetsk in the group stage, getting, I think, 10 unanswered goals against them, then City are certainly in trouble. I'm with you on the Barca-PSG thing. That's a good draw for Paris Saint-Germain, in my opinion, getting a, a mid-table Liga side to face uh, in there in that one atletico madrid against chelsea is intriguing isn't it graham this is an atleti side of course knocked out liverpool the holders in the previous competition they do have a habit of grinding these things out this could be frank lampard's biggest test couldn't it
2: yeah i think it certainly is his biggest test as as chelsea manager so far obviously they had the the bayern munich game in the champions league last year but it kind of felt like chelsea were still a work in progress that 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 uh, that season they're there wasn't much expectation on them. There will be more expectation on them this season, given what they've done in the in the summer window and even what they've done over the early part of the season. And they are still a little bit of a work in progress, Chelsea. But they are they've certainly progressed. I think, and and um, this this will be a, a, a bit of a litmus test for for Frank Lampard and, and that Chelsea team. But Atletico Madrid, I think we're going to talk about them a little bit later. And they they did have a poor game in the in the Madrid derby um, on uh, at, at the weekend on Saturday. But they're still near the top of the of La Liga in the title race. They've had a good season, you know, just off the back of a 26-game unbeaten La Liga run. So they're very strong at the moment. And uh, the Champions League last season kind of brought the best out of them. And as you mentioned, that game against Liverpool. So back on English soil, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if they got through this tie.
1: Yeah, and talking about teams playing on English soil and having success, how about RB Leipzig taking on Liverpool as well? If that was played right now, that really could go either way. Of course, these games are going to take place in February and a lot's going to happen uh, uh, until that point. I'm sure Liverpool will be down to about three players with all the injuries they keep getting by that point. So we'll see. But Leipzig, of course, you know, they they took care of Tottenham pretty easily in this competition uh, and took care of... um, um, Assured Manchester United's safe passage into the Europa League as well. So I'm really looking forward to Leipzig taking on Liverpool, can you can you call that one, Graham?
2: Um, no, actually. I mean, obviously, I think it depends on on you mentioned there. Liverpool maybe being down to to three players if their injury problems uh, persist until February, then Leipzig might even be favourites going very well in in the Bundesliga at the moment. Obviously, um, made it through to the to the last sixteen uh, goes without saying. Given we're talking about them now, but with a a, a a good win over Manchester United, it seems like they're moving on from from Timo Werner first. Stage of the season, it felt like he was still a bit notable in in his absence. But um, the the players like Emil Forsberg is, are stepping up. Christopher Nkuku and and uh, you know Danny Olmo are players who can make a difference. And Liverpool are, are a little bit shaky at the back, or at least in terms of of personnel, they're a little bit shaky at the back. So it really depends on how they're they're shaping up in February. If as as you say, if if this was played now, I would probably have Leipzig as slight favourites.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It's a long way to go until these games happen, but very exciting stuff on the horizon uh, from a continental perspective. Also, just a couple of Europa League draw uh, matches that are going to happen as well. Manchester United probably got One of the worst draws they could get uh, with Real Sociedad, La Liga leaders at the moment. That's going to be a tricky one for them. And Arsenal taking on Benfica as well. Uh, An interesting stat I saw here from James Benj on Twitter. Table-topping teams in the Champions League last 16, Graham? Zero. Table-topping teams in the Europa League last 32, 13. The leaders of the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga and League R. We're all in the Europa League. Are we? Are we focusing on the wrong competition here?
2: <laughs> I hadn't, that's actually a really good stat. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that from from James uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of strong teams in Europa League, and actually, in, in recent seasons, I've I've actually felt that uh, the Europa League has been getting stronger, particularly towards the the end of the competition. I mean, you think of the the final you had uh, last year, Sevilla Inter. You had Manchester United, obviously, in in in, in the semi-finals. You know, in recent years, you've had the Atletico Madrid, Arsenal, when they weren't, uh, you know, a, a dumpster fire and were at least competitive. <laughs> uh, Manchester United before that with Jose Mourinho in his, in his first season. So it, it, it has been growing as, as, as a competition. I don't know whether the, the Champions League uh, qualification spot has, has has played a role there but you look through the teams there you mentioned a few of them you know Spurs top of the, the table Real Sociedad I think they're top of the, La Liga at the moment I think they went back to La Liga at uh, the top after um, Atleti's defeat at the weekend mm-hmm. um, Rangers is maybe one I would mention just a, a dark horse. that I've watched a lot of them uh, this season obviously due to uh, where, where I'm based uh, here in Glasgow and and, and they look like a really good team. They're unbeaten this season. They drew home and away against Benfica, who are, are, are a good side, obviously. And Rangers were really disappointed they didn't they didn't win that game. So um, that's one that I would maybe point out. They've 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 got I I wouldn't say a favourable draw antwerp are still a good side, but they could get through that that tie and and could be a factor in the latter rounds.
1: Yeah, exciting stuff. And I, probably, I should mention Lille against Ajax. I think that might be one of the uh, the highlights of that Europa League draw as well. For those of you who like a bit of Thursday night action. And let's turn our attention, Graham, to the weekend. Um, before we get into the games we're going to cover, the very best highlight of the weekend, I don't know if you saw this, was uh, when the players were taking a knee at Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace against Tottenham. Did you see uh, Hyeong-min Son and what Ben Teke got up to?
2: Yes, they they uh, they forgot the uh, the routine uh, and were a little bit eager to to get on with the the match. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the the referee blows the whistle, at which point we know uh, it's customary right now to take take the knee. Uh, Benteke uh, was, I suppose it's uh, yeah, it's Benteke who seems to forget that that's going to be a thing and starts charging into the opposition half. But I I think Jose Mourinho would be very proud because Hong Bin Son basically tries to rugby tackle him. He's he's thinking defensive first there, and then they both sort of go, oh right. It hasn't. The ball hasn't moved yet. We should probably. We should probably do this. That was. That was a nice little light moment. I thought. And,
2: and the, actually, the best moment of it. I don't know if you spotted this is Wilfred Zaha looking behind them as all this is going on and, and glaring at the two of them, either saying what What are you guys up to?" or you know, telling them off a little bit and 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 saying, uh, you know, you should really be uh, taking the knee, guys. <laughs>
1: Wilfred Zaha is the parent at a wedding Scowling at his child Who's making too much noise During the ceremony there isn't he Good stuff Um, Well speaking of good stuff Or the opposite thereof The Manchester Derby Graham Manchester United against Manchester City The 183rd Manchester Derby I think this ranks around 183rd If you were to rank the Manchester Derbies. Not a great uh, commercial For the quality of the league Um, I'll just take a moment to go through All the highlights of the game so that was the highlights of the game, Graham. Um, what did you make of it? Do you think it was... Am I being down on it too much here? Or was it an intriguing tactical battle of sorts?
2: No, I think I think that's a cop-out to say it was an intriguing tactical battle. What I would say is the more I've thought about it and, and taken a few notes on this game, I, I I think there are some interesting conclusions to draw from the game. That's not the same mm-hmm. thing as saying it was an interesting game. I mean, it was one of the worst games of the season. It just didn't come to life. Um, what would be I mean the, the penalty award that was overturned is probably the only thing of any real note that would make a highlights package um, it, was a, it was a bad game but the, the thing that interested me the most about this match was was actually um, Guardiola the way he set up his team um, and I just wonder at this point I mean this is it, it was a very pragmatic approach from City there was very little risk in their play not much threat they didn't take many chances and this isn't the first time we've seen this from Manchester City this season. This has actually become quite regular for them. And, and, and it's got to the point where now I think it's reasonable to, to assume that this is some form of deliberate pro, uh, ploy from Pep Guardiola. Um, is he trying to transition to a, a different sort of style? Is this something that's in response to... The um, abridged nature of of this season, the packed schedule that these players are having to face, obviously due to the the, the later start. Um, I saw an article from uh, Tom Warville at the Athletic who says that that, that clubs that press a lot more are, are being affected more by the, the the shortened season this year. Well, that's that's maybe Manchester City top of that list to have been affected most. So is this is this Guardiola? Um, Making the judgment that the slow and steady approach is going to get his team further over the course of the season, that they won't have those gigantic dips that maybe Liverpool have had with defeats to Aston Villa and, and the draw to Fulham um, just there on Sunday. So and, and also his demeanor after the game was maybe quite telling. I mean, we've seen Guardiola angrier after victories, after Manchester City have won games. I mean, he he didn't seem. That annoyed throughout the match. After full time, he was hugging Michael Carrick on the touchline, all smiles. He didn't seem very unhappy in the post-match interviews. So it kind of suggests that he got the match that he wanted, and 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 that raises a lot of interesting questions about Guardiola. That's what I mean by I think the conclusions from this match are actually more interesting than the match itself. I mean, we've never seen Guardiola rebuild a team before. Is that we're gonna we're gonna start seeing different tactical aspects of him as a coach. Is this one of this these these different aspects that he's actually trying to change style and move away from his I know he hasn't been tiki tackle for a while, but that was the basis of 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 his philosophy is, is he now moving away from that that moving away from the high press I don't know it's it's interesting in a sense
1: it's yeah, it's interesting in a sense apart from when you actually look at what's happening on the field I suppose Graham it's if this is the next evolution of Guardiola, I don't think I'm on board for it based on this evidence. I mean I just don't understand why they didn't go for it a little bit more um we had sort of de bruyne maybe a little bit more advanced uh, when facing that manchester united diamond which was very successful we can get to that in a second but i just the, the guardian des- uh, described this as sterile domination you know the sort of not which i suppose is a nice way of saying not doing much with your possession and i've always had a theory that when guardiola sets up in a 4231 it's it's usually doomed to fail and this is what we got in this game i just don't understand what was going on here and as you you mentioned there was very little events to kind of mention when I was sort of looking at what we were going to say on this podcast about this game you're right I think that there was a couple of shots that were blocked and went wide and there was a a very obvious penalty you know overturned from an offside decision anyway but nothing else happened and I can't remember a game in a long long time where I didn't have really much to say about it but that we can go a little bit deeper on it I mean what what do you think is the evolution here Graham? is it just literally just moving away from high press is that what we're seeing here yeah
2: i i don't know as as, as the honest answer to that i don't i don't know what we're seeing I, I just i just think we've seen this kind of performance from city maybe not to this extent i mean this was really really risk free from city we haven't quite seen mm. this so far um this season but we've seen this a number of times the spurs game maybe being a a, a prime example that I, I just think a coach of the presence of mind of Pep Guardiola. I mean, he he knows what's going on. He's obviously he's he's aware of everything. Pep Guardiola, we know that about him. You know, he he's meticulous in his preparation and his analysis, and and it just feels like this has to be somewhat deliberate from him. I think his subs were the most disappointing aspect of this of this game from a a, a city perspective, in that you could maybe understand if his idea was to. I mean, let's not forget, City have had a bad time against Manchester United in recent derbies. You know, United did the the double over them in in the league last year. So maybe Guardiola's initial thought was, let's be quite pragmatic. Let's give ourselves a a solid basis. But then around the hour mark, it became clear that United weren't really offering much themselves. And rather than putting on someone like Bernardo Silva or Phil Foden as maybe would have been a better candidate... Both those players were left on the bench for the full ninety minutes and mm. and you know, there's some they're players who can create something out of nothing. You could have introduced them into that team and not really upset the the system or the or the balance that he had and yet that he left them on the bench, which was really quite perplexing and, and just makes me think that Guardiola was quite happy with this result and quite happy with this performance.
1: Yeah well only a single sub used from either side actually and uh, if we can focus on Manchester United we have to give them credit for this one for a start not all mid-table teams can get a result against Manchester City although indeed Man City are very much a mid-table side themselves at this point but I suppose where we can give Manchester United the most credit and I feel like we oscillate quite a lot on this show Graham between criticising and praising Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for his setup. but I suppose we got to praise him here for the midfield diamond here with um, Fernandes at the top, Fred at the base and Pogba and McTominay which which sort of overloaded the midfield. And, you know, Manchester City being quite reliant on the midfield, that really helped there. It helped Bruno sort of beat the press, whatever there was of a press. Uh, maybe it would have been a bit more effective if we had some uh, fullbacks who were more inclined to attack. Maybe, I mean, if Alex Tellers was involved, it might have helped things. But I once again, I don't understand why Solskjaer didn't quite go for it. After the disappointment of coming out of the Champions League, this might have been an opportunity for him to make a, a statement. They're at home. Uh, They could have, you know, could have gone for it a little bit more. Do you you agree?
2: Yeah, I mean, in in hindsight, yeah, you would say that game was there for the taking. What I would say is I think Solskjaer had a lot more to lose than Guardiola um, in this match. Obviously, as you mentioned, they're coming on the back of that that Champions League exit to to Leipzig. If Manchester United had lost this match, um, I think Solskjaer would be at a a real risk heading into the the, the winter period. Guardiola obviously, City are not going so well either. So he, in that, in that sense, he had something to lose. But he's just signed a new contract extension. There, you know, even if he'd lost this game, there, you know, he's he's not going to lose his job after that. So I think Solskjaer had had a lot more to to lose. I think he was more justified to be quite cautious in this match, just because obviously what what City can offer. I, I think there were there were a few aspects of the more I looked at Manchester's performance, I actually thought there was there was quite a lot to praise. You mentioned the midfield diamond there. I thought the way. Um, Greenwood, Fernandez, and Rashford pushed up really high when Ederson had the ball um, playing out from the back was actually really effective. Mm. And even when City were playing the ball to to Yal Cancelo, that was quite clearly a a, a trigger for uh, Wan-Bissaka to press high up the pitch. Now, the, the problem there then came if City did play around that Manchester United press, then there was space in behind Wan-Bissaka and actually I felt he had He's had some great games against Manchester City, wan particularly last season um, where he really kind of kept Raheem Sterling quiet. I felt this was a little bit... He played this game a little bit more on the edge just maybe because he was being pushed higher up the pitch and there was more space mm. to, to exploit him behind. But I felt the the system worked relatively well in the middle of, of, of the pitch. I noticed that... Um, Kieran McKenna who's who's one of Solskjaer's assistants along with uh Michael Carrick he he spent loads of the match on the touchline and he, his his voice was coming across on 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 the British broadcast anyway um he really seemed to be um chanting almost Manchester United to 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 keep the press high to and 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 I thought that was quite interesting that Solskjaer clearly feels he needs someone like that to actually keep the rhythm and the tempo of Manchester United's game and I felt it worked early on because obviously we've seen Man United have really bad first halves recently and th- that didn't really happen against City um so I-, I I thought it was I thought that was quite interesting they did have a uh, 46% possession which uh, is actually the the highest possession share in a derby against City since uh, 2015 and it was, as wow. it was the 11th highest total of any Premier League team against a Guardiola-Manchester City side, which I thought was quite interesting. So even though it did feel like City were the dominant side, Man United had quite a, a good share of this match. So in the end, 0-0, no, no, I think we can all agree, was, was a, fair, a fair result and a, an accurate reflection of this game. But out of the two managers, despite the demeanour of Guardiola after the match, I actually felt it was Solskjaer who had more to be happy about.
1: Indeed. Well, both sides hopefully will get a better opportunity to score in the midweek round. Uh, Manchester United will have their three points from Sheffield United. Manchester City, uh, uh, West Brom at home. So uh, maybe some more points on the horizon for those two Manchester sides. Let's switch it, Graham, to Craven Cottage, where Fulham earned a 1-1 draw with Liverpool. And this is a very unique situation where Fulham fans could come away from a game against Liverpool and feel hard done by.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They they could have been out of sight before before halftime, Fulham. I mean they really they probably should have been, and I felt Liverpool were actually fortunate to to get a point. Now obviously you could make the the argument that, that their comeback was quite strong in the second half, but I feel like they were they were fortunate to even have a chance um of staging a comeback because Fulham should have had two or three. They obviously had that, that penalty decision which um to me, looked like a penalty. It's very strange that you the, the referee will go and look at the monitor and and not give a penalty. I think that's only the second time that's happened in the Premier League this season. Yeah. And, um, Fulham Fulham looked very good and very very encouraging for them in their fight against against relegation. I thought they were doomed at the start of the season, but things have really picked up and and uh, I think there's a belief now that they can get themselves out of trouble.
1: I think, yeah, they, they do seem to have a lot of belief at the moment. I think that's that's going to go a long way to helping And You've got to give a lot of credit to Scott Parker as well. Those last few games they've had, performing pretty well against Manchester City, beating Leicester, and now this game, I think that's four points in those three games and, uh, and a minus one goal difference from those games. They had 27% possession in this game, Graham, but they just—they just looked, you know, they looked very, very impressive. They had a—they had a high line themselves. They were very compact. They were passing the ball very nicely up the field. A few really good performances. Ungieser uh, and Reed were great in the middle. Uh, um, Bobby Reed uh, I, I was great as well. Um, I mean, it was—it was just a very impressive performance all round from Fulham. Lots and lots of energy, creating chances on the break, and um, you know the way they seem to just really take advantage of Liverpool's sloppiness in the final third I thought Liverpool did look quite sloppy in the final third and you know the back line intercepting those uh, those final third passes and setting on Gieser free it seemed like everyone was working very hard for that Fulham team and a lot of what they were doing for me Graham seemed to be coming through that left channel with uh, Anthony Robinson and uh, Adametta Lookman looking really good a lot of pace on that left channel um, and and sort of forcing Liverpool to look a lot more average than they are
2: yeah, it was it was it was a very good performance from Fulham and, and I think Scott Parker's decision to switch to a back three a few weeks ago has has really kind of changed the the dynamic of that team. I, I watched Fulham it must be three or four weeks ago um, at home to Everton where they 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 they, they concede three goals in the first thirty five minutes and at that point mm. you're thinking there's no way this team is going to stay up even if they are quite good in attack which they were at that point but there's just no way a team conceding this many goals is gonna is gonna survive in the Premier League and. The, the the back three system clearly works a lot better for them as you mentioned there robinson on 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 the left side as as a win back there and and they have talent and and in the attacking third i thought cavallero was was really good um, you mentioned uh, de cordova reed there he's he's had a good season he's actually been one of their best performers even even when um, things weren't going so well for them and and then adamola Lookman who is is a player who has long been tipped for the top he's got a lot of potential obviously he uh, he went out to Germany didn't he He went to to the Bundesliga on loan didn't really work for him there now he's at Fulham and um, I think we're starting to see him realize some of that potential and actually you look through Fulham's squad and I I think it's actually a better squad than than many uh, have recognized so far this season a prime example is maybe Ruben Loftus-Cheek who I know he's struggling for fitness. He's not quite there yet, but if they can get him fit, he he has the potential to be. And this might be a bold claim, but he he has the potential to be one of the best midfielders in the Premier League. This is a guy who last season people were asking why he wasn't why he wasn't playing for Chelsea. I think some people were surprised that he was he was loaned out this season. So if they can build a a team around him, certainly the, the midfield unit anyway, it, you know, Fulham are going to be pretty strong in there. I think if there, there's one thing they're lacking, I know I've, I, I'm kind of contradicting myself a little bit here because I've, I've praised a lot of their attackers, but none of their attackers you were, would say are reliable goal scorers. You know, they're not they're not true number nines. And I, and I think that's maybe something that, that links quite a few of the teams down the bottom of the Premier League. You're, you're looking at Burnley. I know they've got some uh, big target men to hit, but again, no one who's who's probably going to score you 20 goals in a season. And then certainly Sheffield United. I mean, that's the, the main issue with them. So Fulham uh, have, have the same issues as, as a number of the t- teams down there, but encouraging signs for them at the moment.
1: Yeah, very encouraging stuff. I, I, I would be encouraged if I was a Fulham fan. And I think a, a point I heard made on another podcast, Graham, was that they had a very short, period between when they are elected to the premier league and when they started usually you get a couple of months to prepare and if you were to take that couple of months that would that would take them past the sort of bad start they had and this is a very 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 different team to the one we saw on the opening day who when we watched that game um on the opening day of the season they look pretty much doomed from the start there so it's, it's it is encouraging it's going to be very interesting at the bottom of the table as for liverpool was this the worst performance of the season and this is a season in which they have lost 7-2 to Aston Villa?
2: Yeah yeah um, I felt it was a, a really poor performance I, I, the the Villa game was slightly different in that I know it was 7-2 and there's obviously an emphatic nature to, to losing a, a game by that by that uh, you know sort of degree but the Villa everything went right for them in that game. It felt like everything that every shot on target went went, went in the back of the net. They had, you know, Barclay and Grealish and, and Ollie Watkins all playing magnificently. So it kinda of felt a little bit like a fluke, whereas whereas this game, Fulham were playing well because of the system and it didn't it didn't feel as as much of a fluke. It felt like a, a, a product of the work that Scott Parker had done and, and also a product of, of Liverpool's performance as well. So um yeah, I would, I would agree, even though this result, obviously they picked up a point from this game, but I, th- I think there's a strong argument t- to be made that this was their worst performance of the season so far. I, f- I felt Gent um, Alexander-Arnold was was really poor, and obviously you don't want to go too far in your criticism of him because he's a, he's an exceptional young player and, and has had a brilliant last two, three seasons, maybe the best right-back in Europe, but this was a, a poor performance from him. I, I, I did question why having not played for so long, he played in the Champions League and then he's played here. And, I, and also I felt Klopp recently hasn't, he's, he's made a lot recently this season of the, the the schedule and how he wants five substitutes and how he feels the players are getting really pushed this season. He's probably been the most vocal Premier League manager on this. And yet in recent mm. games, he's not really used his subs. He's not really rotated. I think uh, Salah, the, the front three of Salah and, and Firmino and Mane um, Salah certainly played during the Champions League. I can't quite remember if, if the other two did, but it feels like there probably should be a bit more rotation, especially heading into this this Christmas period where Liverpool are going to be playing, you know, every four days or, or so, and so um, slightly strange. I also felt his decision to put Henderson into the back four. Obviously, the the yeah. Matit injury mean forced forced Klopp into a decision, um, but the decision to put. Henderson into the back four over, over Nat Phillips, who was still left on the bench. Obviously, Phillips has played for Liverpool this season. He's not totally unproven. He he has a natural centre-back. And while it worked against Fulham, who obviously in the second half were starting to sit a bit deeper and deeper, and so Henderson could actually join the midfield a bit more, is that is that Klopp's plan for the game against Tottenham on Wednesday night, to play Jordan Henderson at centre-back? Because I don't think that'll work too well against uh, Harry Kane and, and uh, Song Hyo Min. So... I felt that was a questionable decision. I'm interested to see what he does uh, against uh, Mourinho's Spurs.
1: Yeah, big game for Liverpool against Tottenham on Wednesday. That will be very interesting to see what he does with that back line. It just seems like Liverpool just looked a bit uninspired. I think that's the best word I could describe for them here because they just didn't seem to have any ideas going forward it was the old adage of they ran out of ideas therefore let's bang in a load of aimless crosses and when we see an expansive team like Liverpool do that it's a it's a bit of a sign of trouble isn't it and you know the, the, it just wasn't wasn't a great performance all around with uh, uh, Bobby Cordova Reed getting the opening goal with a, a really nice hit but it was from a corner Liverpool pushing up and they the, caught the back line sleeping basically did Fulham no, no real closing down for Reed. it was able to take a touch and get his shot off there uh, and then can we talk about the penalty as well? Uh, Mosalah converting a penalty to equalize there. Was that a penalty for you, Graham?
2: Yeah, it was it was for me and I've, I've heard a few people obviously you had the different angles and one angle it very clearly looked like he he took his you know, his, his standing leg. Um, and in another angle it looked like he he he'd, he'd got the ball a bit more. Um, so, I guess it really, it really depends on which angle you find more convincing. Uh, I felt that the angle where he, Oh, this is the Fabinho did, incident like, you're talking about here, Graham, right?
1: Sorry? This, this, is, a, this is Fabinho's incident on Cavalero you're discussing here, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Is that what you. Go ahead.
2: What, what you, what you,
1: what, I was talking about um, Salah getting the handball where it struck Kamara in, in the wall. I thought that was. I mean, by the letter of the law, it's pretty harsh. Yeah, but.
2: yeah, it was a little bit harsh. But it's, 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 sorry, I, I got that confused there with what incident you were talking about there. Um, the yeah, his his arm is slightly um, you know you would say out from from his body. So I guess it's the old unnatural position. Are you making your your body bigger um, by by doing that? It's harsh. It's very harsh. But I guess that's the VAR age that that we live in now.
1: Yeah, it does seem like there's something fundamentally wrong with that rule. And sorry to interrupt your flow there, Graham, going back to the Fabinho and Cavalera incident. for, For me, that was like, oh, Fabinho got the ball there. That's fantastic. And then you look at it from another angle and it's like, oh, hang on. He did go right through Cavalera before he got to that ball. That was a that was a curious one. And as you say, the referee going to take a look at the monitor as well. Another instance where Fulham could feel pretty hard done by
2: yeah certainly and and as I said earlier it's very rare I mean when, when the, in the Premier League when a referee goes over to to look at the pitch side monitor it's pretty much a given that either a decision is going to be overturned or a decision is going to be given and uh, yeah so I, as I say I think it was only the second time this season that's that's happened and um, to me it, it, it looked like a penalty it was just down to the, the two different angles or I think there was maybe three different angles and, and the one where he cleans out his standing foot looked the most convincing to me so yeah I think Fulham we're right to, to feel aggrieved about that.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and they, they are in eighteenth at the moment. Graham got a couple of very important games coming up: uh, Brighton midweek and Newcastle at the weekend. Exactly the kind of games Fulham will need to win should they uh, pursue the Premier League next season. Do you think they got a good chance?
2: Yeah, I, I think they. I think they do. I mean, I'm seeing uh, as you you mentioned earlier, there their season started quite slowly, um, but. They're, they're grown in stature and and they look more comfortable in this shape. And um, if this is a marker, a game against the, the Premier League champions, which they probably should have won, then uh, I think there's lots, lots to be positive about.
1: Yeah, a strong marker there. A strong marker indeed. All right, let's take our attention, Graham, to the continent. We're going to talk about the Madrid derby, a little bit more interesting than the Manchester derby. But before we do so, a quick word from our sponsors of
3: today's show.
1: All right, Graham. Real Madrid against Atletico Madrid. A 2-0 win for Real in this game. A pretty perfect week for Zinedine Zidane's side as well. Um, you know, they've got three... Three wins and three clean sheets in a row for Madrid. Um uh, uh, Seville, Gladbach and Atleti there. They've stayed in the Champions League. They're in league contention. They moved up to third, I believe, with this uh, with this win over their Madrid neighbours. Uh, and against the Atleti side who were unbeaten, I believe, in the league since February. And I believe it was Real Madrid who uh, who were the, the uh, culprits that day as well. Real Madrid, Graham, to me, seemed like a team who they are sort of a collection of individuals who can have some poor outings and we've certainly seen some poor outings from this, this season but they are just a team who are so strong mentally who can really raise a game exactly when it matters.
2: Yeah, exactly and that that's what they've done they did last week I mean they had three games really to uh, to save Zidane's job I don't think that's, that's been overly dramatic I, I, I think had he lost to Sevilla or Glad uh, Bruce and Gladbach in, in in particular he he probably would have would have been sacked obviously the, the a defeat to Gladbach would have would have sent them out the Champions League which would have been unthinkable for Real Madrid they are a, a club that that prides themselves on on their European record as the most successful uh, team in the competition's history. Um, but first the first win over Sevilla was was um, it wasn't it wasn't that impressive I mean in a way win over Sevilla in any circumstances is always uh, quite impressive but in terms of the performance it wasn't that emphatic. They got the result, but really they've used that as a platform. The performance against Gladbach was very impressive, and then and then this win against uh, Atleti was was very impressive. Where Simeone got a lot of things wrong, which we might talk about I think a, a little bit later on. But but Zidane got a lot of things right, and and I think Zidane's a really interesting case study as a manager because often when managers struggle you hear chat of he's lost the dressing room the players aren't fighting for him anymore and you you never even when things get bad with Zidane you never really get that feeling with him and i think that's because he manages through his aura as as a, as a you know a fa- a, a former Ballon d'Or winner a, a real madrid legend both as a, as a as a player initially obviously he had that aura and now he's got it as a, as, as a coach as well and it just means that his team is capable of of pulling these sort of performances out of nowhere. Just because it's not really, but whenever Real Madrid do badly, it's not really down to tactics. It's not really down to anything that you can put on on a chalkboard. It's it's just um, you know I don't. This sounds very simplistic, but just down to players not turning up. And so the flip side of that means that if you have that extra motivation, if you have a situation where you feel you need to fight for your manager, which is. I think, that the sense within the Real Madrid dressing room, then they can pull off these performances. And I think it's quite similar to uh, Solskjaer at Manchester United, who who manages through his aura as well. You wouldn't say he's any great tactician, but he has a hold over that dressing room because of who he is. And similar to Zidane, his team pull out these performances when, when they need them, because that extra bit of motivation actually counts for something. Um, and yeah, very, very encouraging week for Zidane. And, and Real Madrid... It, you, you kind of look back, you know. They, they look like they're they're a force again. Luka Modric is finding great form. Casemiro is finding great form. Benzema was brilliant against Gladbach in the Champions League. And when mm-hmm. these players players uh, play well, then then Real Madrid are are arguably the the best team in Spain.
1: I think that's a really good point about you know wanting to work hard for your manager, and I think that particularly applies to Zinedine Sedan I don't know if you've ever met or interviewed him Graham I did so uh at the 2013 Champions League final who was in London and I had an interview with him and um he's he's a very very intimidating man when he stares you in the eyes it's it I've never felt a feeling quite like it to be honest and he uh, my interview was it asking questions in English he only replied in French he's got he's got a very dominant aura about him and he was at he was uh, there for a sportswear company and he took some penalties and like this virtual screen and he just they were like I'm gonna put the ball there now I'm gonna put it there now and he was wearing like black shoes with his suit and he was just doing it every time it was incredible that's another story but the point being that I think when you've got a manager like him who has that aura who who can look at you and you know you don't want to disappoint him I think that's that that counts for a lot in that Real Madrid dressing room and I think Graham when I look at this game it was probably won in midfield because I thought Real Madrid's midfield were outstanding in this game. Casemiro was excellent in the middle. Tony Kroos was just doing Tony Kroos things, just fantastic. And Luka Modric once again sensational. That that middle three was so good. And you can compare, compare it to what the middle three of Atleti, and they just work so much harder. If you look at say Casemiro to Koke. There's there was you know, Casemiro was streets ahead in this game, I thought. So that for me was a a big a big piece of the puzzle
2: as well. Yeah, one thing I would say is that, that Simeone's decision to go with a, a front two of uh Felix and 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 Costa, which I know has worked really well eh, sorry, not Costa Suarez, Suarez, um which I know has worked really well um this season, and he maybe didn't want to deviate from a winning strategy but against Real Madrid, it just robbed Atleti of, of, of a body in, in, in midfield. And, and against that Real Madrid unit of Casemiro, Kroos and, and Modric, who obviously, I mean, is there a midfield unit that know each other better in in, in European football? I mean, they've, they've played together for five, six seasons now, um, know each other's games inside out. And, and Atleti were just simply overwhelmed. And it wasn't until half time when Simeone um, put on Thomas Lamar, that 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 really changed, and 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 Atleti were able to get out and were able to have some form of control in the center of the pitch, which they, they just didn't have in the first half, and, and and also the 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 decision to have Carrasco as 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 a, a left wing back, and also push, even though Trippier was playing on the right, the, the first half instruction for him seemed to be. To, to stay back quite often and, and it just meant Atletico, Atletico Madrid were, were almost suffocating themselves as, as well as Real Madrid were were playing um, and it would have been difficult against them regardless as the second half showed when the, the changes did help, help Atleti but Real Madrid were still on top but the first half it just felt like Atleti couldn't get out either through the outlet they usually have on, on the wings or through having someone like Lamar in the middle to actually carry the ball forward.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point you make about Trippier and, and the team sitting back. I think I think he and a, and a few of the other players were sitting back far too much, and particularly with Trippier, I think they gave Tony Kroos too much of the ball and too much room, and they lost control of midfield a little bit there. So that was that was a, a questionable decision from Diego Simeone. Also, Graham, when you're tra- you're chasing a game, and you're trying to get a goal back, taking off both Jael Felix and Luis Suarez, that was curious wasn't it
2: <laughs> yeah it certainly was I, I, I actually felt the decision to take off uh, Felix before Suarez was was particularly uh, interesting shall we say just because it, Suarez had offered very little in that game it just wasn't a match for him at all he, I, I looked at his stats before the, the, this pod he touched the ball 23 times in 72 minutes which is fewer than any other player who started the match Thomas Lamar came on at half time and touched the ball forty six times, so double. The, and I know he's a central midfielder, and and I know touches the ball don't illustrate um, all that much in in in, in, a, in a deep uh, sense of of statistical analysis, but it just shows how how Suarez was struggling to get involved in the game, and and Felix was furious after he got hooked off, I and mean, he was throwing his jacket around a little bit, and I think with with, with some justification because while Atleti were struggling in the attack in third, if they were going to if they were going to get anything, it felt more likely to come through Felix than, than Suarez. And and Suarez was taken off 10 minutes later anyway. So that, that I think that was an admission from Simeone that that didn't work. And he got a few things wrong in this game. Um, I think while this knocks them from their stride a little bit, it, it's not a disaster. You know, they're still very much in the, in the title race at the top of La Liga. They've still had a very good season, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, February 2020 was the last time they lost. So, um, let's not go to go too over the top. I think some I mean, got only got this wrong. Um but there are things to, to learn from it so that it, it, it doesn't become a something that lingers and, and these problems aren't something we see in, in future matches from Athletic.
1: Yeah, and we mentioned, well, I mentioned about not wanting to disappoint Zidane. I think the, um, the, the Simeone would certainly have been disappointed with his team, maybe from the defending and from set pieces as well, with uh, Casemiro getting the opening goal after 15 minutes from a corner. He was not tightly marked for that. They had, to, if you watch it again, there were sort of three red shirts all sort of clumped behind him and giving him pretty much a free header. Uh, João Felix being one of those red shirts, so maybe that explains why he was hooked off uh, around the hour mark. Uh, so, yeah, it's a not great stuff and also there was a free kick later on I think it was Lodi who made a really terrible back pass into the box which Benzema collected and um I think he passed it to Tony Kroos when he was tripped by Correa and I think that might have even been the free kick from which the second goal came when with uh, Danny Carvajal getting an absolute banger um, which it's always hard seeing that rule as an own goal because it looked so beautiful, that goal, didn't it? But it wouldn't have gone in without, um, you know, Black getting getting the deflection there. So um, a, a good a good win for Real Madrid, but as you say, not all lost for, for Atleti. But um, in terms of Simeone, he's he's I imagine he would have given them the hairdryer after that, particularly from, from a defensive perspective.
2: Yeah, and, and the set pieces will obviously be the the most disappointing thing of, of, of this performance for, for Simeone just because obviously with Atletico Madrid the, one of the things they're renowned for is is not just their um, their threat from set pieces but how good they are at, at defending set pieces and and while last season actually they were they were pretty weak from from set pieces there was a sense this season that that they were starting to get that that strength back um, this was a lapse there was there was something not quite right in in, in the marking. I didn't see Real Madrid doing anything unorthodox or unusual. There wasn't any particularly um, any special movement that created that opportunity for Casemiro or, or, or any of the other opportunities that they had. Um, it was just lapses from from Athletic Madrid, and and really they, they were they were probably given how well they played this season, you know, unbeaten this season, beaten all the way back to February. They were they were probably due a performance like this. It's just a shame from their standpoint that it came in the derby.
1: Indeed. Uh, Real Madrid, uh, they'll be facing Athletic Club midweek. That'll be a tricky one for them. Uh, Atletico Madrid, they have next up, I believe, Elche at the weekend. So we'll see how those ones pan out. Thank you very much, Graham. We're going to move on to the Bundesliga. Before we do, though, quick word from today's sponsors.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Policy Genius. It's already December. Hey, it's mid-December by this point. And as much as we love getting seasonal, this month can be a bit stressful too. We've all got a long list of things to do for the holidays. And if life insurance is one of the things way down your list, Policy Genius might be able to help you cross it off. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the policy genius team will handle all the paperwork, all the red tape and policy genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, but you aren't sure where to start, why not start at policygenius.com? It only takes a few minutes to find the right life insurance policy to apply and cross another thing off that to-do list. Policy genius, when it comes to life insurance, It's nice to get it right. Thank you very much to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's show. All right, Graham, let's turn our attentions to the Bundesliga. Uh, Bayern Munich only got a point uh, the weekend at Union Berlin, but the one we need to focus on is Borussia Dortmund against Stuttgart at home, losing 5-1, costing Lucien Favre his job. Uh, Not a great performance from Borussia Dortmund here, particularly defensively, but... The, the overriding message from this team was that they were not working for their manager. It seemed there were there was no fight at all in this team, and particularly when you look at a few of the goals where um, Stuttgart were on the break, and a few Dortmund players just seemed to be casually jogging along as if we're saying, "Hey, this might get our manager fired. Let's 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 just keep this pace up." What did you make of this one, Graham?
2: I think uh, Marco Royce summed it up after the match. His quote was, "We're a team that can't defend." I think uh, he summed that up pretty well. Yep, that is entirely what you are—a team that can't defend, or a team that won't defend, going on the on the basis of of the performance. The thing that that struck me about so many of the the Stuttgart goals in this game were, yeah, sure, that the fifth goal was a breakaway goal, so you could put that down to Dortmund chasing something. But I think f- four of the five goals, it seemed like there were lots of Dortmund players around the, the you know the Stuttgart. Stuttgart players who, who were creating an opportunity. I mean, I, I think there was a, a there was one um, Stuttgart opportunity in particular that caught my eye. It was Koulibaly on, on around about 30 minutes. And he had four Dortmund players around him inside the penalty box. He still managed to get through those four players and get a shot away. Now, his shot wasn't very good. He probably should have done better. But the fact that he was able to get a clean shot away having so many players around him, you, you just question what the, the Dortmund defence was up to. Um, and it was it was a really poor performance. This, as you kind of referenced there, the, the sign of a team that have just given up on their manager. This had been coming that that Favre would, would lose his job. I think we probably discussed it on this pod before and in previous weeks whether he was he was on thin ice. He certainly was, and, and so there was just no way that he could survive a five-one defeat at a home to a promoted side. I mean that's Dortmund fifth in the Bundesliga. Six points off the top of 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 the table behind uh, Leverkusen, and and really, I think the Bayern Munich situation has actually heightened the pressure. It heightened the pressure on Favre because it feels like there's an opportunity in the Bundesliga some this season for for an outsider for somebody to to really to really challenge. And Dortmund should be that team, and they're just not at that level at this moment.
1: They're definitely not at this level. And as you mentioned, some of the goals there, it was pretty shambolic. The uh, first goal was a penalty. Uh, It was a a two versus four at the back situation, four yellow shirts at the back. And um, Stuttgart was still able to find space until Emre Chan mowed. I think it was Klimawik down. It was just... Pretty poor defending on that one. The second goal from Juan um, was I think it was Guerrero who would had a pretty poor game in this game. A really bad giveaway on the edge of the box. And then he got caught in no man's land, sort of shuffling back and forth. Where should I go? Which player should I run to? And he ends up just standing next to Jude Bellingham, and the player making the cross is able to run free uh, for an easy finish there. The third goal, another one. It was Philip Forster got that one. Uh, cross comes in, and just his first touch just completely beats the defence. <laughs> and uh, he's got loads of space between. And Forster had sort of before he received the ball, he was just standing between the lines, and no pressure on him at all. Loads of space to receive the ball. And it, I think it was Guerrero again who didn't sort of pursue the player with the ball in front of him there. He just sort of stopped dead. So once again, a bad, a bad game from him uh, and. Uh, koulibaly for the fourth goal. This was Dortmund saying, "Oh, uh, I think it was was it Jude Bellingham who sort of passed it to koulibaly uh, No, so he, he made a pass that which was intercepted. That one didn't quite pan out. Oh, I'll just pass it straight back to you again. It was two passes back to Stuttgart, uh, and the defense the, the was massively stretched there. And as as uh, Kulabaki's breaking away, this was what I mentioned at the top of this uh, section. The Players were just jogging back. Yellow search was just jogging back. There was no urgency to try and stop that goal from happening. Oh, just and and the, the the fourth goal as well. I think it was Nicholas Gonzalez got to uh, the fifth goal. Sorry, Nicholas Gonzalez getting that goal. It was it was another counter attack. It was another one where I think Borussia Dortmund had the numbers advantage, but they were still outpaced. Matt Hummels being particularly slow and nowhere near the action for that one. So yeah, pretty disastrous day for Borussia Dortmund all around. Discounting the fact that um, uh, Gio Reyna got a nice, a very nice goal, and I think Guerrero I think it was Guerrero who's provided the assist with that really nice diagonal ball, wasn't it, Graham? And yeah, um, it was. So that that was his redeeming moment of this game. Uh, a very nice finish from him. But apart from Reyna shining, pretty pretty doomy day for Borussia Dortmund.
2: Yeah, I mean the the Reyna goal was was magnificent. The, the ball comes over his shoulder, he controls it with his right, I think, then he, then he flicks it over the keeper with his, with his left. And mm-hmm. and and it's just, it's the sort of thing you look at and you think, there's just no way I would have been able to do that. <laughs> I know that's stating the obvious, but a lot of the time you'll watch a, you'll watch a match, you go, I, I could have scored that. This was one of those things where you go, I, I don't actually physically understand how he's been able to keep his balance, how he's been able to control that and then get that shot away so quickly. And Reyna's really been one of the only uh, redeeming Features of this season for for Dortmund, he's he's been one of the players who's who's dug them out of a, a few holes and and just in the end there was there was only so much he could do. I think he had a goal disallowed as well at, that would have made it four um, two and and even that wasn't enough. The thing that struck me most about this performance was just the number of chances that Stuttgart had. I mean, they could have mm. they could have scored more than five. They probably should have scored more than five. There was a penalty decision where where Hummels um, plows into I actually. Can't remember who it was. was. Was it Koulibaly? Was it Sosa? Maybe I, I can't quite remember who it was, but he, he probably should have given away a penalty for that as well. And and as I say earlier, there's just no way he, that that Farva could survive this. And um, yeah, now now that's a discussion over who replaces him. There's a number of names that have that have been mentioned.
1: So what do you think about that discussion, then, Graham? I mean, we've heard names like Jesse Marsh being mentioned, Pochettino very very ambitiously mentioned here uh ralph ranik perhaps uh kike setien i've seen his name come into the mix he's obviously uh perhaps seeking work at the moment uh as it stands it's uh, the assistant coach edin Terzik who will be uh on board until the end of the season maybe they're hoping for like a hansi flick kind of situation they're not yeah. sure how that's going to pan out but w- what are your thoughts Do you think they'll they'll give Terzik to the end of the season and then go for a, a big name because if you if if in some world they were they did get Pochettino, imagine what he could do with this group of players. There's so much potential here.
2: Yeah, Pochettino would be a, a magnificent appointment. I just think it's a little bit unrealistic because he is the most sought-after coach in, in European football at the moment when the, the next elite-level job comes up, whether it's Real Madrid or Manchester United or PSG is maybe the most realistic one there. I, I think he... Uh, I think he'll probably be in line for that job. I also think he maybe wouldn't want the the job because of it's, it's it's another project club for him. He wants a team where he can he can win. And Dortmund, obviously, despite the fact that they probably should be doing better, they should be in a better position. They're always going to be um, second to Bayern Munich in terms of their resources, and so Pochettino is going to face many of the same frustrations at Dortmund that he that he had at Spurs in terms of the other names that have been mentioned I mean hassan has has I've seen a, a few people put him forward I think he'd be a good appointment doing a great job at, at Southampton obviously has experience of the Bundesliga um, having having coached leipzig but really I, I think going on on the German media what they're reporting it kind of comes down to a choice between uh, Jesse Marsh who of course uh, American listeners will, will know well doing a good job at, at Red Bull salzburg previous uh New York Red Bulls head coach and the other obvious one is is, is Marco Rose who is doing a great job at Bruce and, and Gladback and actually looking at the reports I think it was Sport Build reporting, reporting this morning it might actually already be a foregone conclusion because they're reporting that there is a, some form of verbal agreement that he will take over at the end of the season and I think that would be a real coup For for Dortmund, given the job he's done at Gladbach, given that a lot of people have mentioned he might be a future Bayern Munich manager, for Dortmund to get in there first, I think, would be a real statement of intent.
1: It would indeed. We should probably mention, um, it has been said that Pochettino would not qualify for this job because uh, it's Borussia Dortmund policy to have the manager speak German, uh, which I don't believe he did. And to be fair, when he came to Southampton, I don't think he spoke English, but that's the uh, that's the policy which I believe they have operated thus far. But if we're going to talk about coaches, um, particularly in this game, Graham, perhaps we should give a nod to Stuttgart and their coach, Pellegrino Matarazzo, born in New Jersey and raised in, uh, in the US until college level. He needs massive credit for this team who are as we say newly promoted they're up in seventh place really exciting really efficient soccer they're playing it just seems like you know here's here's an interesting one are they the german leads i, I got leads vibes <laughs> from this team
2: yeah i mean i think a few weeks ago we called atletico madrid the the spanish spurs i mean these are these <laughs> these analogies are actually meant as uh compliments in previous seasons they maybe wouldn't you know stuttgart maybe wouldn't welcome being called the the German leads, but yeah, obviously there there's a comparison there. Promoted from the the second tier last season and play for a European place this season, playing some some really good uh, dynamic football and 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 a charismatic manager in, in Materazzo. So um, yeah, I, I'll go along with that comparison.
1: Thank you very much for humouring me on that comparison. Just, you know, they they just like they like to win the ball back. They the, lots of high pressure, lots of counter attacking, uh, and as you say, a newly promoted team who are brave. They're brave. They're not intimidated by going to the Vässervallen Stadium, and, and uh, you know, and they have a. Uh, you know, heartily rewarded for it. So more credit to them, Graham. And more credit to you, Graham, for joining me once again on the Weekend Review. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. And once again, congratulations on your new home. Are you going to, are you got, what's next? You got to put some curtains up or something?
2: (laughs) Probably. I I mean, I think I've got to, uh, uh, by the sounds of it, join the the guys who are building the rest of the house outside. You know, you probably heard that in the podcast, me fighting over the sound of saws and and everything like that. So I'll, I'll probably give those guys a bit of a hand.
1: All right, well, I'll, I'll leave you to go put your hard hat on and join join the fellas outside, Graeme. Thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Graeme.